Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to the Buddhist Studies channel of the New Books Network. My name is Kate Hartman, and I'm an assistant professor at the University of Wyoming and one of the hosts of the Buddhist Studies channel. And I'm joined today by Andy Carr, teacher, author of several books and articles on Buddhism, as well as a photographer, all the way from Halifax, Canada. Most recently, he's the author of Into the Mirror, A Buddhist Journey Through Mind, Matter, and the Nature of Reality, published last month by Shambhala. Thank you for taking the time and welcome, Andy. Thanks so much for having me. I'm delighted to be doing this. Yes, I really enjoyed the book and I'm excited for this chance to talk about it and let the listeners know what they might expect. Um, But why don't we start, as we often do on the New Books Network, by having you tell us a little bit about yourself. How did you get into the study of Buddhism and how did you come to write this book? Uh, The short answer to how I got involved in Buddhism was that as a teenager, I watched too many samurai movies with Toshiro Mifune in them. And uh, somehow I was given a copy of uh, Zen in the Art of Archery by Eugen Harrigal. And I got this kind of mythic idea about Zen masters, kind of superhero visualization of what a Zen master was, and I decided I wanted to be that. So it took me a few years before anything practical came out of that, but I ended up hitchhiking with my girlfriend to San Francisco to study with Suzuki Roshi. But getting there toward the very end of his life and never getting to see him teach, but uh, learning the practice of meditation at Zen Center, and uh, that set me on the path. Mm-hmm. Um, and you haven't become a samurai, unfortunately. Gosh, no. <laughs> okay, still still on the list of things yeah. to do. Well, um, I always love know. hearing about the, the sometimes, you know, we often have an ambivalent relationship with what gets us into the study of Buddhism. Um, but it's that kind of youthful inspiration, I think, is something to, to honor. I'm sure it's still in the back of my mind that I want to be that kind of Zen master. But, you know, I I think I've uh, been treading the path on a much more ground level way. (laughs) One of these days. Um, So let's turn to Into the Mirror. What was your motivation to write this book? Um, Who is it for? And, you know, in the book itself and in our email exchanges, you talk about the book as perhaps somewhat unorthodox. Um, What does that mean when you were writing this book? I started working on this about 10 years ago, strangely. Uh, I had a couple of false starts before I really had a sense of what I wanted to do with this book. But I think the uh, core interest has always been how Buddhism is meeting modernity and feeling that that we had a a problem. We have two problems, actually. One problem is that uh, Buddhism in the modern world 
I think has a problem talking to sophisticated people in the modern world. We um, have a lot of uh, traditional teachings that go back 1,000, 2,000, 2,500 years, um, often in, in kind of uh, mythological ways that don't land very well with educated people today. So that's one problem. The other problem in meeting modernity is that as modern people, we carry with us a culture that is deeply materialistic. Uh, we have a view of reality that is very conditioned by our environment. And some of those um, materialistic views prevent us from experiencing the depth of the Buddhist teachings, that they're obstacles in a way to understanding uh, the profundity of the path. So I wrote this to be a guidebook for making a profound spiritual journey in an age of materialism. That's my elevator speech. <laughs> nice. Yeah. And I, 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 one of the things I really loved about this book was both that it sort of wanted to talk to, you know, people with sort of modern education, upbringing assumptions, uh, but it wasn't necessarily interested in totally assimilating itself to modern worldviews. And indeed you take, you know, central aim at this idea of materialism that we'll talk a little bit more uh, when we get to the middle of the book. And so it both, you know, lives up to kind of modernity, but also challenges some key ideas that kind of infiltrate the quote unquote modern mind. Yeah. Well, that that's very much the intention. Mm -hmm. So the book takes a three-part structure. Part one introduces and unpacks uh, important Buddhist ideas, such as the Four Noble Truths, the Three Trainings. Part two then delves into this idea of materialism and physicalism through engagement with contemporary philosophy of mind. And then part three builds on both of those sections by taking you on a journey through this progressive stages of insight in the Mahayana tradition. Um, what about this structure made you um, able to kind of address the audiences you wanted to address? Why did you want to structure it this way? Well, that's that's a great question, because uh, I, if I have any ambivalence about the book, it's be that I couldn't present a clear and simple logic of why it's structured that way. I ended up doing that because I felt there was uh, I need at the beginning to go through what the point was and uh, the four truths really straightforwardly explains what's the point of the path, why are we doing this, and um, in particular introduces the Mahayana slant on the four truths that um, the kinds of craving and attachment that we experience are ultimately not about the things we think that they are, but about our projections or our versions of those things that are more mental phenomena than uh, material phenomena. So th that was the starting point for the structure. And then there are a few more chapters that, that talk about the practice and um, the, um, 
the way the the three trainings work together, the training in uh, meditation, the training in the view or the philosophy, and the training in the conduct or the ethics. So uh, I wanted to get everyone on a, kind of a common understanding of how I was presenting the path at least. And so that's the first chapter, uh, the first section rather. And then uh, I felt that the a core issue that I needed to tackle was how materialistic the modern world is and how to approach that and some tools that come from the Western uh, philosophical tradition to to challenge the materialism that seems to be so dominant. And that that was like a preparatory, another preparatory element for the third section of the book, which is how to make this Mahayana journey, how to um, to understand the Mahayana and what the key um, contemplative and meditative approaches are to it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think it effectively um, works for multiple kinds of audiences insofar as you get your kind of Buddhist basics out there in the beginning in the second section, you're kind of deconstructing ideas that people might come to the book with. And then the third section can then proceed with the kind of more constructive development. Yeah, that that is exactly how I visualize it. Um, and I think the audience for this book is fairly specific. I think it's uh, aimed at intellectual Buddhists and Buddhist-adjacent intellectuals. Mm-hmm. Yes. So this is, and you can see from, you know, the folks, the many folks who give it wonderful blurbs on the back and in the front pages, and it's a mix of uh, folks who are Dharma teachers, um, but then also Buddhist studies, academics and philosophers. So this is, um, I would say, you know, not aimed at, you know, for people already in the Dharma community only, not aimed for people who are just interested in the academics, not aimed at people who are just interested in the philosophy, but in certain ways bringing those groups together. Yeah, and, you know, it's also not aimed at people who just want to learn how to meditate. Mm -hmm. Yes, there's various reflections throughout on maybe vignettes that people might think through and certain, you know, references to meditation, but it doesn't aim to be step-by-step meditation instructions yes folks will have to combine this or go elsewhere yes yes and one thing i do you know i know a lot of academics listen to this podcast uh, but one thing i really like about these you know chapters is that they're very short and concise so you could imagine um you know i as an instructor my students are increasingly more resistant to reading long things and so short chapters that pack a lot in um there's a lot of really great material that I, I think I will find useful in teaching here. Well, thank you. I, I, I appreciate that because I that is very much a stylistic thing for me that I I like a short chapter personally. I like to be able to, in one sitting, read enough to reflect on and then I'll be able to put it down and not feel like I have to read for two or three hours to get to the the conclusion of a chapter. Mm-hmm. Or let's say you're reading before bed, you read half the chapter, but then you try to pick up the next day and it doesn't make sense. Each of these small chapters has a complete idea 
Yeah, it's bite size. Uh-huh. It's bite size, and I think particularly for the the type of material that is challenging sometimes, uh, it needs to be bite sized because it requires a certain amount of reflection to understand what the point is. Mm-hmm. You know, yes. it's not just easy reading and then you put it down. A lot of it really asks you to reflect on how you experience things and uh, how a logic that's presented might challenge your um, your assumptions about reality. So, mm-hmm. Yeah. And so, you know, that's a great opportunity to, to dive into this idea of reality that you, I think what makes this book really distinctive among Buddhist books is that uh, there is a lot of engagement with contemporary philosophy of mind. Um, and so to start off, right before introducing the section on philosophy, you have a page called an interlude that says the first law of philosophy, for every philosopher, there exists an equal and opposite philosopher, the second law of philosophy, they're both wrong. And so, you know, you're engaging with philosophy, but you're also, you know, playful about it. What did you kind of mean to, um, by taking this approach? Well, I think that there's two aspects to that. One is that um, I think it's important to not take oneself too seriously, especially if you're writing a Buddhist book. Mm-hmm. Uh, I I find it difficult to swallow people who think that they're producing the holy writ. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but the other is that I learned from one of my main teachers, uh, Kempo Sultram Gamso, that when you're presenting really challenging philosophical material, challenging intellectual material, it's extremely important that people be able to relax because mm-hmm. normally many of us, when we hear things about emptiness or Madhyamaka in particular, which is has all these logics that are very challenging and hard to wrap your mind around. They make us more and more tense. And since the point is to be able to look at your own experience, that tension becomes an obstacle. So Kemper Rinpoche, when he would teach, was very playful. He taught the definitely the kind of hard-assed, philosophical methodologies of Buddhism. But he would have all these toys that people would give him up on his throne. And he would during a talk where his translator was translating things into English, he would start winding up all these little wind up toys and they'd be running around on the throne and you couldn't help but laugh. You couldn't help but relax because the atmosphere wasn't, this is serious, you have to understand, and you have... So I tried to find literary ways of of doing the same thing, Uh, little bits that uh, would would help people to loosen up and relax as they went through the material and not take it overly seriously. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I like that as sort of an introduction to, um, you know, there's a lot of challenging material in this sort of contemporary philosophy section. Um, You have quotes from Nagel and Chalmers and Daniel Dennett and all of these folks. 
Um, but I think do a really good job of making it accessible and understandable. But, you know, why do you think it's helpful to engage with these philosophers of mind from outside the Buddhist tradition? You know, sometimes if you're chatting with folks who um, are Buddhist practitioners, they'll say, oh, you know, all of that is irrelevant. It's just going to tie you up in knots. It's not helpful. Um, why delve into this literature and why lead readers to consider it? I think the basic reason is that a lot of the um, philosophical positions that we already assume are already part of our uh, worldview, we're unaware of. So finding methods that that challenge these uh, assumptions and worldviews from within modernity, I think, is really helpful. David Chalmers was the first one who opened my eyes to this when he, uh, there was an article he did for Scientific American back in the mid-90s, I think, on the hard problem of consciousness. And that really spoke to me as a Buddhist, that someone from the contemporary Western academic philosophy world could raise these issues of the mind in a way that was super meaningful and challenge these materialist views that I have always found deeply problematic was great. So um, I think for Buddhists, there are two values in this which go to the heart of those two problems that I mentioned at the beginning. One is to surface our own assumptions about um, reality and challenge them, but also to give us language to talk to sophisticated modern people who, who have similar concerns and would have trouble listening to challenges coming from Buddhism, classical Buddhist theories, but might pay more attention to things coming from uh, contemporary philosophers. Mm -hmm. Yes, in some ways, um, these philosophers give voice to the stuff that's kind of going on, perhaps even subconsciously in a lot of our minds. And so in particular, you take aim at this idea of materialism and listeners may be thinking, oh, yeah, Buddhists are against materialism, buying lots of stuff, you know, taking too much pleasure in material things. Um, but you're interested in a kind of deeper philosophical view of materialism. Can you tell us a little bit more about that and maybe what the problem is with it? Yes, I think it it is also true that the consumerism seems to be a huge problem, but there's an underlying issue that um, that materialism represents. Materialism is a philosophical position to begin with. And uh, the Dalai Lama articulated this really nicely in The Universe in a Single Atom, where he explained that, that materialism or physicalism, as it's sometimes called, is a metaphysical position. It's not a scientific finding. And I would contend it's not just a metaphysical position. It's an ideology. 
it's an ideology that everything is fundamentally made up of the particles and forces described by physics. That's weird. That is a fundamentally weird position because the particles and forces described by physics all are models. They are intellectual, conceptual, mental models we have about reality. All the mathematics, all the observations, all the theorizing, all of that stuff originates in the minds of scientists and is communicated to the minds of everyone else. So when we say, oh, everything's made of atoms, everything's made of quarks, that seems to be real stuff. But no one has ever seen an atom or a quark. We see readings on computers that are analyzing these uh, experiments in particle physics that are conducted with very high-powered magnets and things. All of the um, things that we feel are making up our reality are models of reality. They're not reality itself. So we need to go a lot further into it than that. But that's kind of the, the core argument against materialism, that it's a philosophical view or an ideology about reality that, um, in a sense, there's some amnesia involved, that science goes out, it looks at experience, it models it, it comes up with explanatory theories and models to explain how reality works and then it forgets that all of that was happening in their minds mm -hmm. and then it has this strange question of well how can the mind arise from all this matter mm -hmm. forgetting yes. that it's the mind that is creating the models and observing them mm -hmm. yeah and this leads you to you know the so-called hard problem of understanding subjectivity and what gets left out if we say, oh, all of our experience is ultimately reducible to um, maybe brain scans and ultimately, you know, atoms and electrons flashing at each other. Um, right. <laughs> right. Yeah. So that is the hard problem. The, the hard problem that David Chalmers articulated in the early 90s was that um, we can observe all of these uh, physical, chemical, biological processes, and we cannot explain how mind could arise from them. Mm -hmm. And that, you know, so all of us sort of experience the world in the first person. Um, how do you get that? And so um, the soft problem is, well, maybe if our computers were good enough, maybe if we were smart enough, maybe if we were fast enough, we could explain how this would arise. And that's kind of a technological problem, but, you know, that maybe in the future we could solve. But this hard problem of how you get from an analysis of the world in terms of, you know, um, physical objects observed in the third person by scientific instruments, how ever would you get from there to the first person sense of the world in which most of us experience it? And so you think that 
Buddhism has kind of a response to this or that this helps illuminate certain aspects of Buddhism, and in particular, the, the fundamental nature of mind itself? Yeah, well, I think, you know, the, to me, there's a really interesting switch that can happen when you recognize that science happens within mind rather than mind happens within matter. Mm-hmm. So when you have the sense that that science is happening within mind, you don't have a hard problem anymore because you can't really get outside the horizon of consciousness to find some source of mind. Mind, we know from the first person experience, from our own direct experience, and logically, there's no way of imagining how you could have a view outside of experience to prove that there's something other than the experience itself. Mm-hmm. And so what do you say to, I'm, I'm sure if maybe you've, you've taught about this or talked to people about, you know, someone raises their hand and it's like, are you saying that like physical stuff doesn't exist? You know, um, I refute it thus and they kick a rock. Um, <laughs> What would you say to that, you know, objection? Yeah, um, there's no reason to claim that physical stuff doesn't exist, but there's no way of proving that it does. So we can be completely agnostic about the existence of, of matter. We know that there is experience, and experience by definition means that there's mind. Mm-hmm. So... Um, that is, you know, if you, I refute it thus and kick the rock, well, that's all within experience. You know, you can't find a rock that exists independently of someone experiencing it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and as I was reading this, I was thinking of the recent sort of scholarly um, reevaluations of Yogacara. So when I first learned about Yogacara, and I'm not saying that my teachers taught me this, this was my understanding mostly because I viewed Yogacara through a Madhyamaka critique of Yogacara, was that Yogacharas, um, Yogacharans were idealists and they didn't think anything existed. They were pure, total idealists. And I think, you know, a more sophisticated understanding is, no, they're not saying nothing exists outside. But they're saying that mind is always involved. Yeah. And you can't get to a situation where you're outside of mental representations, experience, cognizance um yeah that if you think that you're getting outside of the problem of mind you're 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 fooling yourself and you're um missing the point that's right and i i do want to talk a bit about yogachara maybe later on but um i i I think the reevaluation of yogachara is is also important Mm -hmm. yes and so, you know, perhaps this is, you know, maybe a little bit too obvious, but what is this point about the the primacy of mind in our experience mean for how people experience the world? How does this like connect back to kind of people's everyday lives and yeah, that, that is that is the core issue here because um if this were just a bunch of philosophical hoo-ha uh it would really be marginal and uninteresting frank to me at least the the issue is that that when we are fixated on matter and materialism there's two things that happen one is it reifies our sense 
of of being bound in situations in um in an in a physical bondage of some sort the other is that it emphasizes that whatever happiness you want or whatever suffering you experience is based on physical stuff getting the good stuff and getting rid of the bad stuff and missing the core point that these things that we want are our own projections they are things that are happening in our mind things we want to avoid are things that are happening in our mind and yes they're things that are pleasant they're things that are unpleasant they're difficult things that happen in life but it's the um projections and the confusion about what we are experiencing that causes the suffering there's pain but then on top of that we pile the suffering that comes from all the fabrications that we don't recognize mm-hmm. so um you know materialism uh, and physicalism make it seem like the only way to change your experience is by physical stuff either it's pills you take things to affect your brain things that you could buy credits that you could earn all of that stuff seems to be the bearer of happiness and sorrow the actual bearer of happiness and sorrow is the mind the origin of happiness and sorrow is the mind how we work with our minds determines how we experience our reality and so if everything's physical and everything's material then we don't feel that working with our minds is going to get us anywhere because we're still not going to have what we really need which is more stuff but you know the modern world is showing us pretty clearly that more stuff isn't the answer you look at elon musk and no one's going to say oh there's a happy guy at peace perhaps you were also scrolling twitter you know before we got on here um, <laughs> certainly that's not the picture i'm getting from yeah. basically anyone on that website myself included yeah mm-hmm. yeah and and yeah I, so as i was reading this book i'm also preparing i'm teaching a course in the fall um history of meditation and mindfulness and you know, one of the interesting things that, you know, you encounter in the literature and in students as well is, you know, meditation is great because we can look at these brain scans. And once we understand these brain scans, we can do this, this, and this, and that. And in some ways, um, you know, proponents of this, of, of various ways have their reasons, but in some ways they're saying, oh, we're making Buddhism more scientific by thoroughly assimilating Buddhism into this kind of physicalist model that purports to be neutral and objective and not metaphysical, and yet is always importing some kind of hidden assumptions about reality. And the notion of letting Buddhism maybe challenge some of those assumptions is, I think, a really potent one. I I agree. And, you know, I think there's there's a couple of aspects to that. One is that um, there, there are two parts to Buddhist meditation. There's the cultivating peace, which we call shamatha, 
And then there's cultivating insight, which we call Vipassana. The cultivating peace is an important aspect. It is effective. It works. It's a way to um, to work with your experience, the things that arise in your mind, and overcome a lot of the anxiety and confusion that we have. The transformative aspect of meditation comes from the insight that Vipassana produces. And um, that insight is not something that we're going to be able to observe with um, external methods, third-party methods. The, um, the title of this book, Into the Mirror, is for me very interesting. First of all, because I had a lot of really bad titles at the beginning, and my publisher came up with a bunch of bad titles. And then the morning that their committee that approves titles for books was meeting, into my mind popped this title, Into the Mirror. And they really liked it, and I really liked it. And I thought, great. Reminded me of Through the Looking Glass, and I liked that, and the sense of of something really shifting, really transforming. But it was uh, only a lot later on that I had a further insight about the title, which is that I think the, the heart of the book is about the way we are continually chasing and running away from reflections and not the things themselves and that the the um, antidote to that is to go into the mirror to become uh the mind that is wrecking recognizing the reflections rather than chasing after the reflections themselves so that's the kind of transformation that i think meditation potentially offers if you emphasize not just the uh, cultivating peace side, but also the cultivating insight. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there was a a way that you explained in the book, I'm looking for the page now and failing, but you have the example of imagine that your, your friends are inside a restaurant and you're outside and you're looking at the mirror or you're looking at the window. And if you approach it from the wrong angle, it just reflects the outside. You're not going to be able to see through it. Um, but if you take the right kind of view, you can see it as now a window. So in a certain way, depending on how you ap- approach it, it acts as a mirror reflecting the outside, or it shows you what's on the other side. And so you use that to talk about how the mind is kind of like that. If we're looking at it in the wrong way, it's it's just all reflection. It's not showing you anything. It's not You're not able to get through it in a certain way. Yeah. But when you recognize the nature of mind you can see through it. Um, is that an adequate representation of your point that's, there? Yeah, that's great. Yeah, the way that um, glass and mirrors and reflections, um, but that when you go into the mirror, so I, I like that all whole extended metaphor. Uh, so thank yeah. you for unpacking that. Um, but let's let's turn to the third section, unless there's something that we've missed in that second section. So with all of these resources, with your kind of Buddhist basic concepts, but then also illuminating this problem that we moderns sometimes bring to trying to understand Buddhism, you then set out on what's called the profound journey through Mahayana's historical development. And so it's structured according to 
um, you know, the Buddha's teachings and then Abhidharma attempts to systematize and then Manyamaka, Yogacara through Buddha nature. Why is this third section structured in that way? Well, that was really interesting for me. I had to make a journey. When I got to that section, I thought, well, you know, I should really talk a little bit about how the Mahayana developed. And then I realized I didn't know. And I had to study that. And I looked at both contemporary and um, traditional teachings on that. And I was really surprised because the the um, kind of the, the standard story you get in the Tibetan tradition is that the Madhyamaka was the ultimate thing. Nagarjuna came up with this in the second century. And then there were these other things that happened later on with uh, Asanga and Vasubandhu. They came up with the mind-only school. and But the Madhyamaka is the highest school. And then some people say, well, but there's this super Madhyamaka, which is actually Yogacara. And it gets very complicated. Uh, my first book was about the traditional way the 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 levels of the view are explained in the Tibetan tradition. When I started researching for the origins of the Mahayana, I was surprised to discover that it was much more organic than it is portrayed. It's not that there was some revolutionary shift that... Um, one team was fighting against another team and then a third team and so on and so forth. That that a lot of the ideas in early Buddhism uh, fairly seamlessly moved into the Mahayana that uh, we now have a picture at least that, that there were uh, viharas, there were uh, monasteries that had both uh, foundational vehicle monks and Mahayana monks, everyone was taking the same mis- monastic vows. There weren't separate vows for the Mahayanists. The, that, you know, the views were developing probably as much the way people's articulated things was shifting more than how they were experiencing things. My guess is that the Buddha was not some having some lesser realization and that his um, arhats had some lesser realization. But I think the, um, the way the teachings evolved was in terms of people's capacity to communicate them and to understand them on these different levels. So the evolution of the Mahayana, I think, does parallel the way we experience our own journeys, our own um, insights develop in a, in a similar way to the historical evolution of the teachings. So the Madhyamaka, uh, the middle way tradition is the beginning. It comes out of these Prajnaparamita sutras that are appearing around the uh, turn of the millennium, and it is articulating ways of recognizing the lack of nature of phenomena. But 
this still leaves questions unanswered that, you know, even when you have uh, some experience of the emptiness of phenomena, there's still a lot of stuff going on. And uh, Banyamika doesn't really address that. And later on, you have these people who don't consider themselves to be different, a different school than Nagarjuna. You have Asanga and Vasubandhu who are starting to talk about things in a different way, but it's, it's, it's a way, for me at least, of, of going deeper into what happens when you recognize emptiness. So I chose to use the evolution of the, the teachings in India as a way of exploring our own evolution in this um, profound transformation. Mm-hmm. And I felt that was more helpful and more realistic than the more scholastic, complex way that this is often explained in the Tibetan tradition. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it doesn't necessarily um, do doxa, doxa, doxography. Apologies, uh, doxography in the way that you know a presentation of the nine vehicles or something you know a traditional Tibetan formulation might do it, but instead goes through um, with a lot of engagement with the history, the the scholarship on the history of Buddhism, and you can see from the footnotes that you're reading a lot of these um, scholars on the history of Buddhism. I, I think I it helps. Particularly, I particularly want to mention Carl Brunholtzl who um, I think for me more than anyone pointed out how the um, the whole mind only uh, notion was was retroactively applied to a bunch of teachers who probably didn't have that view and that that the Yogacara that that did develop in India was um, a more subtle and profound understanding than um, the Madhyamaka that preceded it. Mm-hmm. It was further developing the the points that Nagarjuna was making. So, mm-hmm. yeah, which, that... is, which is very heretical in the Tibetan tradition. But hey, <laughs> I won't tell. But we we are you know making a publicly available podcast but <laughs> um but yeah i think that this uh provides a really accessible sort of introduction to the historical sweep of things that doesn't get bogged down in like you know the overly footnoted way that historians will tend to write and that it, it engages with that without losing sight of kind of why each of these developments matter in a philosophical way yeah i i feel like i took kind of a risk in using some primary materials from Nagarjuna and from Vasubandhu in there because they aren't as easygoing as um, more contemporary teachings are. But I felt like a little challenge at that point would be helpful for people to at least introduce them to these guys and what they were saying and at least give people a feeling that they could understand these primary texts. Mm-hmm. Yes, and I think um, you you walk that balance beam really really nicely here. So maybe that um, that last question is an introduction to. So you talk about Rajna Paramita emerges ideas about emptiness and Madhyamaka, but then you mentioned that there even once you get this idea of emptiness, there's a lot more going on, and that you know the insights of Vasubandhu and Asanga and Yogacara more broadly 
help us to understand what is going on there. Could you say a little bit more about that? Yeah, I think, you know, there's, there's, um, in the Tibetan tradition in particular, the Mahayana and the Vajrayana have a strong connection. Sometimes that gets obscured and it feels like they're two different animals. The, um, the methods that the Mahayanas use are very different from the methods that the Vajrayanas use. But the, um, the way of understanding the views are, I think, fairly uh, seamlessly connected. That understanding emptiness and luminosity as the two primary aspects of the mind is comes out of the Mahayana and in the Vajrayana it gets used for developing sophisticated methods for uh, making these very experiential. But the, in the Mahayana, they're already articulated really well. So you have the um, the middle way, the Madhyamaka teachings that really cut through any fabrications you have about your experience, any way of um, conceptualizing it are, are cut so that you have more direct sense of what it means to have a mind, what it means to have experience. And so that empties out the fabrications. And yet the mind continues to fabricate, uh, for most of us at least, that we continue to have thoughts and emotions and uh, perceptions of all sorts. And uh, knowing that they're empty is one thing, but experiencing them that way is another. So if in order to experience them, you have to have some understanding of, of what they are, that um, they are cognition, that they are not necessarily based on anything external that's producing them, anything material that's producing them, that there are different types of consciousness that arise out of the ground of mind, um, and that the duality that we experience of me looking at my world is also a fabricated thing, that that, that duality is the way my mind is appearing. It's not inherent in something. It's not part of the furniture of reality. It's the way it appears to me. So that's where the, the Yogacara understanding is really helpful to, to take it further, to, to start to recognize that the subjectivity that we are so engaged with all the time is arising and dissipating at the same time as the objectivity that is arising and dissipating. So you get the, the sense that the objectivity is false from the middle way, but the subjectivity still remains until you start to take it apart from the Yogacara perspective. Mm -hmm. Yes, and that um, just doing it from the Madhyamaka emptiness side is 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 not sufficient insofar as that's kind of emphasis on the deconstructive nature, um, whereas Yogacara helps kind of understand how these things arise, perhaps. 
Yeah, and as my um, teacher, Campo uh, Sultram Gyamso said, the middle way tradition teaches what reality is not. And the Yogacara tradition teaches what it is. So one is emphasizing the empty nature and the other is emphasizing the luminous nature. And the the ultimate view is that reality is the inseparability of these two. Mm-hmm. Yes. And so as you're developing these ideas, you, you know, continue talking about Yogacara and um, Buddha nature in particular as sort of helping unpack the implications of some of that luminosity idea. Uh, And then you talk about um, Lojong practices of mind training um, from the Tibetan tradition. Why do you, how does all of that lead up to that point? This is sort of one of the places where you get to towards the end. Yeah, so I I tried to bracket the book in um, a sense that, that, you know, the primary themes of the book are about the view, about the philosophy, about the understanding. Secondary is the meditation. Mm-hmm. But um, I tried to bracket it with the ethics and the conduct because those are really, really important. And this type of material might lead people to think they aren't. So I wanted to make sure to, to come back to uh, how we are in the world is critically important to how we will master these teachings. It's not enough to just have great intellect or even great intellect and great meditation but it's really our conduct in the world that that makes all of this meaningful and drives it home. And, you know, early in the book, I talk about the three trainings of view meditation and, and ethical conduct. And so at the end, come back to a practical way of, of applying the conduct. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I appreciated that you, you know, somewhat autobiographically, in the beginning of the book, when you're talking about the three trainings, say, you know, initially the ethical conduct aspect of the three trainings was not necessarily your favorite part insofar as perhaps like a lot of people, your attraction to Buddhism was that it wasn't like, you know, perhaps what you experience as overly restrictive do's and don'ts and commandments and thou shalt nots um, right. in other traditions. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, coming out of the the 1960s and uh, the counterculture is like, hey, forget about it. (laughs) I don't need your stinking rules. (laughs) Yep. (laughs) That spirit is alive and well in in, uh, many of my students' minds. They say, oh, great. Like, you know, everything's illusory. I can do whatever I want. That's right. So um, it's good to remind people that at the end, everything's empty. It's luminous. And you have to bring that to earth. You can't just have that as a theoretical permission to do whatever you want. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that, you know, this this mind training um, that you go into explaining a bit more, right? Everything has to be suffused with bodhicitta, this aspiration that all beings um, become enlightened and become without suffering and compassion, care, and all of that. And so you 
The second to last chapter is compassion in an illusory world. So bringing together these ideas that maybe at the first glance you say, ah, everything's illusory. Anything goes. Yeah. Um, You say, nope, that would be to misunderstand the whole reason that we engage on this, this journey. Yeah. And then, so you sort of end with reflections on death as well. So another thing that perhaps, you know, people might not take as, you know, the, the happy, be relaxed, be mindful, you know, be more productive goal well, of Buddhist I, meditation. You say, actually, no, reflecting think, on death is really important. I think reflecting on death is important, um, but it also, to me, drives home the point about materialism being false. Because the materialist view is that when we die, the body dies, and that's it. The mind, whatever. But in fact, since no one can observe the mind from a third-person perspective, no scientist can measure the presence of mind, how can we assert with confidence the absence of mind? So I, I think, you know, if you have been around someone before they die and just after they die, it has a very um, miraculous feeling to it. It's, um, It's very stunning because when they were still alive, you could tell the mind must be there. And when they are no longer alive, the seems like the mind is not there. And that's, it feels mysterious. It feels remarkable. Um, it's it's worth recalling. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and maybe, you know, that reminds me of another sort of peril of this sort of materialism, physicalism that a lot of us sort of assume is that that implies, you know, oh, we understand everything already. And in some ways, sitting with the mystery of moments like that, or the, you know, what is happening and and recognizing that we really don't know. That's a good point. Is a a profound point all of its own. And so, see, the book ends with appendices on um, more philosophy of mind for people that want to delve even further into that, and then more on Lojung training for people that want to delve even further into that. Uh, but in some ways, the the journey of those three parts, I think we've um, kind of tried to take listeners in through that, although, of course, we hope that they delve even deeper by reading the book itself. <laughs> yes. Um, but is there anything that we've left out? I don't think so. I think you did a great job of taking us through this journey. I appreciate that. I really enjoyed it. Um, And to all listeners, you know, of course, podcast hosts are going to say that the book is great, but this is me um, actually saying that I really enjoy the book and will assign parts of it to students. Great. Well, I I hope it's helpful. Um, I got a tremendous amount out of writing it. I learned a a huge amount that I hadn't anticipated. And um, and I I do think that this core issue of being a guidebook to a profound spiritual journey in an age of materialism. I I think that's important, uh, whether through this book or not, that we can take a spiritual journey without blinding ourselves to all the wonderful things of science, the amazing things of the contemporary world, 
Um, one of the things that I've tried to do when I've talked about the book in other contexts has been to, to be very clear that I'm not anti-science, that I am not anti-modernity, that, um, for example, the, the, the fact that our lifespans have doubled in the last hundred years is a testament to science and to public health. And this is amazing. People used to live an average of 40 years. Now, all over the world, not just in North America, people live 80 years. That's the average. That's huge. Whether we use that li extra lifetime well or not is another question, but, but that science has been able to do that? Wow, fantastic. So I'm not anti-science, but I think our critique of science or of modernity needs to both acknowledge science's wonderful contribution and terrible contributions. And that the materialism that that is not science, but comes out of science, out of people's view of science because of its power is a problem, is an issue that we need to tackle. And that tackling that issue will help us, one, be much more uh, in tune with mind as the primary source of joy and sorrow, but also how we are with the environment, with conflict, with wealth, all these things that are contemporary huge problems, uh, the more we respect and work with our minds, the more we'll be able to make progress with them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that brings us you know, back to that earlier point that this book takes modernity and its contributions really seriously, while also kind of pointing our attention to, you know, what sort of things get dragged along with it that perhaps can you know, lead people on the wrong path. And so um, how can we benefit from all of the, the wonderful things that we wouldn't want to do away with, but also um, acknowledge that sometimes we can be a little bit deceived or are at risk of being deceived, we can say. Um, let's see, what is next? So now that this book is out, you said that you started writing it about 10 years ago. Are you embarking on a new book, or are you taking some well-deserved time to rest? That's probably my last book. Um, my The thing that I'm working on now, I'm mainly interested in developing some programs that um, involve both meditation practice and study, uh, deep training programs. That, that's my current passion. Great. Well, we'll look forward to, to learning more about that. So thank you again to Andy Carr, author of Into the Mirror, A Buddhist Journey Through Mind, Matter, and the Nature of Reality. Thanks so much for taking the time to chat with me here on the New Books Network. Well, thank you, Kate. I, I really appreciated this conversation. I really appreciate your way of, of looking at this book and, and inquiring about it. And thanks a lot. Great. Thank you so much.